the thing that jumped out at me right away was that it was just so sumptuous. The language was bigger and richer than anything I'd encountered. Shakespeare's making up words in Antony and Cleopatra because the experience that he's describing is so extreme that he has to create these new vocabularies in order to do it, which is one of the hallmarks of the play's use of language, that sometimes language fails. You know, and we, we can't express the, the depth, the magnitude of what we're going through. The action and the emotion just seemed so extreme. It appealed to me right away. I'm Joyce McDonald, and I'm professor of English at the University of Kentucky. Welcome to Shakespeare for All. Today, we're speaking with Professor McDonald about Antony and Cleopatra. Written around 1607, this is the last of several plays that Shakespeare wrote about ancient Rome, inspired by the Roman historian Plutarch. This play, however, ventures into new dramatic territory. Mark Antony is one of the rulers of the Roman Empire, but he has fallen in love with the Egyptian queen, Cleopatra, and left his family and political responsibilities to live a life of pleasure with her in Egypt. At the start of the play, threats to the empire call Antony back to Rome, but tensions mount between Antony and his fellow ruler, Octavius Caesar, when Antony marries Caesar's sister and then abandons her to return to Cleopatra. Antony and Caesar eventually face each other in a war that will determine their fates and the fate of the empire. Antony and Cleopatra are defeated by Caesar, but this story unfolds against a backdrop of romance, poetry and myth that elevates the couple into a world beyond the political. Cleopatra is the queen of Egypt. Egypt at this point is a client state of Rome. Her aim politically is to try and maintain as much independent political authority in Egypt as possible. We should keep in mind the political motivations of all of these characters. She and Antony became lovers, but Shakespeare imagines that there was great emotion attached to it. And he builds this, this multifaceted political play slash tragedy slash love tragedy around it. It mixes up genres. It's a history play, it's a romance, it's like a, a fantasy. Things happen in it that are very much based in the down and dirty political maneuvering of the day. But there are also things in it that defy reason and common sense. When someone dies of a broken heart, when characters hear mysterious music and the sound of the god Hercules deserting Antony. So it's, it's very much based in the here and now, but it also has one foot in the next world. It's also a play that asks us to think seriously about pleasure and the, the value and the dignity of the erotic. Antony and Cleopatra is a play that takes Shakespeare back to the subject of love tragedy that he first explored with Romeo and Juliet. Except in this play, his protagonists are mature adults and not teenagers. They know what's at stake and they know what they're willing to gamble to lose the whole world. 
the tragedy is perhaps built into that willingness to lose the world. But that's where the glory of the play lies too. Antony and Cleopatra opens with a Roman official named Philo, who describes Antony with contempt. Nay, but this dotage of our generals overflows the measure. His captain's heart is become the bellows and the fan to cool a gypsy's lust. The triple pillar of the world is transformed into a strumpet's fool. Antony has lost his military glory in lustful submission to a foreign woman. Philo calls him a triple pillar of the world because he and two others, Octavius Caesar and Lepidus, control Rome and its territory. Years before, after the Roman general Julius Caesar was killed, Antony and Octavius fought a series of successful wars against Caesar's assassins and the Roman Republic became an empire that they now jointly rule. Antony and Cleopatra is a sequel to Julius Caesar. The play from 1599, Julius Caesar, was Octavius's great uncle, and he had also adopted Octavius as his heir. Mark Antony was another young man, older than Octavius, who looked up to Caesar and was politically loyal to him. Back in the play Julius Caesar, Antony roused the populace to vengeance against Caesar's assassins. Now it's Octavius who looks up to Mark Antony. They have established the the triumvirate with Octavius Antony and Lepidus, controlling different segments of the Roman Empire. Antony's segment of the territory is the rich East, Egypt and what, what was called Asia Minor. The problem is that neither Octavius nor Antony has much respect for Lepidus. So it's not as much of a a balance. These people are extraordinarily ambitious. They're extraordinarily powerful. And what we see play out after Caesar's assassination is these two main actors vying and struggling for political power. When Antony enters, he has a different idea than Philo of what constitutes glory. He speaks proudly of love that overflows the measure. There's beggary in the love that can be reckoned, he says. Messengers arrive from Rome, but Antony dismisses them. Let Rome and Tiber melt, the nobleness of life is to do thus, he says, embracing Cleopatra. But the messengers tell him that back in Italy, his wife Fulvia and his brother have made wars against Caesar and that rival forces have conquered territory in the empire. These strong Egyptian fetters I must break or lose myself in dotage, Antony says, describing himself with the same word, dotage, that Philo used to condemn his foolish infatuation. Antony's determination to leave Egypt is strengthened by more news. Fulvia has died and the Roman Empire is under threat from Sextus Pompeius. Sextus Pompeius is the son of Pompey the Great who stood against Julius Caesar. Pompey is killed in Egypt, except his son, Sextus Pompeius, never forgets his father. So he becomes not only opposed to Julius Caesar, but also deeply opposed to Octavius and Mark Antony. The negotiations between him and the triumvirate were very delicate. 
because they realized this guy was powerful enough that they couldn't just get rid of him. And he had powerful allies. Cleopatra does not make it easy for Antony to leave. Eternity was in our lips and eyes, she tells him. Bliss in our brows bent, none are parts so poor, but was a race of heaven. They are so still, or thou, the greatest soldier of the world, art turned the greatest liar. Antony promises as he leaves, My full heart remains in use with you. I, hence fleeting, here remain with thee. But we soon see how difficult it will be for Antony to straddle the worlds of Egypt and Rome. In Rome, Octavius Caesar speaks scornfully to Lepidus about Antony's idle life in Egypt, calling him the abstract of all fools that all men follow. But he also remembers with admiration the disciplined soldier that Antony used to be, who... Caesar wishes he had this disciplined soldier back at his side when he hears that Pompey is gaining power at sea. Antony does arrive in Rome, but tensions between the two men run high. Then an advisor proposes a way to secure their friendship and make them brothers. Antony could marry Caesar's sister, Octavia. Antony agrees and the two men join forces against Pompey. The Roman soldiers question Antony's companion, the soldier Enobarbus, about Cleopatra. He describes how she appeared like a goddess on a river barge the first time she met Mark Antony, in a speech that captures Cleopatra's irresistible personality and vivacity. The barge she sat in like a burnished throne burned on the water. The deck was beaten gold, purple the sails, and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. Enobarbus concludes by saying that Antony will never leave her. Age cannot wither her, nor custom stale her infinite variety. Other women cloy the appetites they feed, but she makes hungry where most she satisfies. For vilest things become themselves in her. Antony, Caesar and Lepidus offer Pompey a peace treaty which he accepts. Pompey invites the Romans to a feast on his ship, and for the moment all the leaders appear to be friends. But Enobarbus predicts that the friendship between Antony and Octavius won't last long. Antony will leave Octavia for Cleopatra, and then the marriage that was meant to strengthen their bond will instead destroy it. Antony and Octavia depart for Athens, and new tensions do arise between Antony and Caesar. Antony tells Octavia that Caesar has violated their peace treaty with Pompey and insulted Antony himself. If I lose mine honour, I lose myself, he tells Octavia. He allows her to go to Caesar to try to make peace between them, but he starts preparing for war. We learn that Caesar vanquished Pompey with the help of Lepidus's troops and then arrested Lepidus for treason. Antony, angered with this news, prepares his navy to oppose Caesar. Caesar, meanwhile, is angered with the news about Antony. Antony has gone back to Cleopatra and given his kingdoms to Cleopatra and to their children. Caesar's wrath increases when Octavia arrives alone. 
Octavia says she has come to make peace, but then Caesar tells her the news. Cleopatra, he says, hath nodded Antony to her, and he hath given his empire up to a whore. Caesar says he will seek justice for Octavia's wrongs and meet Antony and Cleopatra in war. Antony deserts her, and then he starts challenging Rome and sets up him and Cleopatra as rulers in Egypt and names their children as their heirs in Egypt. Octavius is outraged, not just because of the political disloyalty, but because of the insult that Antony has given to his family. He is furious on his sister's behalf. This is a, a personal insult, and he is not going to have it. Antony and Cleopatra are preparing for war, but Antony's soldiers don't like how preparations are going. Cleopatra says she will join the battle, though Enobarbus warns that her presence will take from Antony's heart, take from his brain, and undermine his leadership. Antony seems determined to undermine himself by fighting at sea, where Caesar is stronger rather than by land. His soldiers urge against this decision, but Cleopatra supports it, and Antony ignores his soldiers' good advice. One soldier says bitterly, Our leaders led and we are women's men. In the first battle at Actium, Antony is led by Cleopatra. During the fight, Cleopatra's ships leave, and then, as one soldier reports, the noble ruin of her magic Antony, leaving the fight in height, flies after her. I never saw an action of such shame. Antony himself is deeply ashamed and urges his soldiers to abandon him. Let that be left which leaves itself, for indeed I have lost command. I have offended reputation, a most unnoble swerving. Cleopatra pleads, Forgive my fearful sails, I little thought you would have followed. He replies, Thou knewst too well my heart was to thy rudder tied by the strings, and thou shouldst tow me after. He tells her, you know, don't you know that, you know, I follow you, that my heart is attached to you? And she looks at him like, I, I had no idea. I didn't, I didn't think that you would do that. I, I, I just left. But... In some ways, Antony's passion for her is deeper than even she understands. Antony finally tells her, Give me a kiss, even this repays me. He sends a message to Caesar asking for terms of peace. Caesar sends to Cleopatra to say that he will grant her wishes if she will hand Antony over or kill him. Cleopatra, perhaps with some political ploy in mind, tells Caesar's messenger, Say to great Caesar, I kiss his conquering hand, and am prompt to lay my crown at his feet. She gives the messenger her hand to kiss. Antony, entering, is outraged at this gesture of favour toward Caesar. Cold-hearted toward me! he cries, and she responds, Ah, oh dear, if I be so from my cold heart, let heaven engender hail, and the first stone drop in my neck. Once again, Antony is won over and makes another plan to attack Caesar. 
Loyal Enobarbus, however, has finally lost confidence in Antony and leaves him to join Caesar's army. That night, the guards hear a strange noise like unearthly music. "'Tis the god Hercules, whom Antony loves, now leaves him," says one soldier. Antony counted the mythological hero-deity Hercules as his ancestor. In Rome, a soothsayer told him, "'Thy spirit which keeps thee is noble, courageous, high, unmatchable, where Caesar's is not.' But near him, thy angel becomes afeard as being overpowered. As Antony prepares to fight Caesar again, his spirit does seem to be driven away. The next morning, as he arms for battle, he is broken by the news that Enobarbus has left him. He sends a messenger to take Enobarbus's treasure to him, along with gentle greetings. Enobarbus is struck by Antony's generosity and by his own sense of shame. Oh, Antony, I fight against thee, he says. No, I will go seek some ditch wherein to die. He asks the poisonous damp of night to take his life and, declaring repentance, he dies. We have been privy to his anguish. We know why he died. But this group of soldiers comes up and sees him lying there. And one of them says, what, what's going on? And the other guy says, no, I, I think he's dead. But the, the first guy assumes he's just taking a nap. That sort of indicates the, the gap between people's experience and other people's capacity to understand it or express it, which is one of the hallmarks of the play's use of language, that sometimes language fails. When we, we can't express the magnitude of what we're going through, we can't even live with it. It, it kills us sometimes. Antony prevails in the second battle and greets Cleopatra triumphantly. O oh, thou day of the world, leap thou through proof of harness to my heart. She exclaims, Lord of lords, O oh, infinite virtue, comes thou smiling from the world's great snare uncaught? Antony anticipates the next day's battle eagerly, but after this third battle at sea, he enters crying, All is lost, this foul Egyptian hath betrayed me, triple turned whore. He saw his ships surrender to Caesar's, and he blames this betrayal on Cleopatra. When she enters, he can hardly contain his fury. Let Caesar take thee, and let patient Octavia plough thy visage up with her prepared nails. Cleopatra flees to her monument, or family tomb. Hoping to dissolve his rage, she sends a messenger to tell Antony that she has killed herself. Say that the last I spoke was Antony. With his servant Eros, Antony reflects on his fallen fortunes. I made these wars for Egypt, and the queen whose heart I thought I had, she false played my glory unto an enemy's triumph. Then Cleopatra's servant brings him the news that Cleopatra has killed herself. Stricken, Antony says, 
I will overtake thee, Cleopatra, and weep for my pardon. He orders Eros to kill him. He wants to follow Cleopatra, and he knows that if Caesar captures him, he will display Antony as a conquered captive in his own triumphal show. Antony wants to avoid this public shame. The notion of a Roman suicide was the notion of you retaining some control over your own death rather than being put to a shameful public execution or a shameful public inquisition into your ill deeds. You don't want to be shamed in public. You want to manage your end privately with dignity. Eros says he will never see his master's shame, but instead of killing Antony, he kills himself. Antony tries to take his own life, but only wounds himself. How? Not dead? Not dead? He says. Then his soldiers tell him that Cleopatra is not actually dead either. He begs them to bring him to her, and Cleopatra and her women haul him up to her in the monument. How heavy weighs my lord, she says. Die when thou hast lift, quicken with kissing. Antony tells her to remember that he lived the greatest prince of the world, the noblest, and do now not basely die, not cowardly put off my helmet to my countrymen, a Roman by a Roman valiantly vanquished. He wants to reassure Cleopatra and himself that at his death he has reclaimed some nobility. There's a phrase that one of the characters uses to describe Antony as the noble ruin of her magic. That's a real powerful phrase. Something bigger than life has, has taken him over and destroyed him. And yet there is still nobility. That objective greatness is still somehow visible inside him. Antony dies and Cleopatra laments in cosmic terms. The crown of the earth doth melt, oh, withered is the garland of the war. The soldier's pole is fallen and there is nothing left remarkable beneath the visiting moon. Now she, too, considers ending her own life. What's brave, what's noble, let's do it after the high Roman fashion and make death proud to take us. Caesar is also deeply moved by news of Antony's death. Oh, Antony, we could not stall together in the whole world. But yet, let me lament thou, my brother, my competitor, my mate in empire. He has no intention, though, of letting Cleopatra kill herself too. He wants the glory of displaying the defeated queen in Rome and sends soldiers to capture her. To her guard, Dolabella, Cleopatra describes her lost lover as a godlike figure. I dreamt there was an emperor, Antony. His face was as the heavens, his legs bestrid the ocean, his reared arm crested the world. Moved by this extraordinary speech, Dolabella reveals Caesar's true intentions. Caesar has promised her kindness, but Dolabella confirms that he really plans to lead her in his triumph. Cleopatra imagines being displayed in Rome while actors parody her and Antony on the stage. 
Antony shall be brought drunken forth, and I shall see some squeaking Cleopatra boy my greatness in the posture of a whore. She will never permit this humiliation. She will take her own life instead. My resolutions placed, she says, and I am marble constant. Cleopatra says she will author her own means of death after the high Roman fashion. Even though she was supposed to be a subject of Rome, she is going to take this opportunity and exercise it as a Roman. So it's a manner of death that denies her submission. A servant smuggles a poisonous asp to her in a basket of figs. Cleopatra orders her women, Put on my crown, I have immortal longings in me. Methinks I hear Antony call, I see him rouse himself to praise my noble act. Husband, I come. She kisses her women goodbye and puts the snake to her body. Dost thou see my baby at my breast that sucks the nurse asleep? What, should I stay? Cleopatra dies. When Caesar arrives, he realises that she has foiled his plan to display her as his trophy, but he seems to respect her for it. Bravest at the last, she levelled at our purposes and, being royal, took her own way. She shall be buried by her Antony, he says. No grave upon the earth shall clip in it a pair so famous. After Cleopatra's death, It's easy to think only of what's been lost, but I also feel that the play wants us to think about what's been gained or affirmed. Her death, even though it removes her and Antony from history, writes them into legend. In our next episode, we'll discuss the different ways the play invites us to judge these characters' successes and failures within both political and mythological frameworks after deaths that signal their demise and their immortality. 